2 Kings 5, the entire chapter. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, My master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him 
and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our minds to experience the wisdom that you have given to us. We thank you now, and pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I will expound only on the first part of the story. I'll drop off uh, Gehazi and his uh, deception, although it's obviously a wonderful part of the story. Not, right? But uh, this is the Bible. This is biblical truth. But in addition, I think this section that I just read is probably one of the greatest short stories ever told. You have wonderful character development in a tight little plot you have this flawed hero. You have this young girl who is there to share this uh, wisdom, this simple truth that she has. And then you have the, uh, this active king of Syria just writing this letter, and the king of Israel just uh, totally nonplussed when he receives it, that he's commanded to heal this man of leprosy. And then you have Elisha who just calmly uh, interacts with them uh, on God's behalf showing that there is a prophet in Israel, there is someone who's not going to be shocked by this request. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. Now, one of the things about the story that I think is interesting is that neither king is given a name. It's just the king of Syria, the king of Israel. And so you'd think when kings are spoken of, they would be named. They're important people. Again, not not in this story. They are not that important in this story. Naaman is very important in this story. Elisha is very important in this story. And the major third person of, up through verse 19 is the Lord God. He is very important in this story. They are the three main characters. You have the kings and the young servant girl just referred to. And so we uh, must take note of that and remark at how unusual it is uh, that this has been the case. Now, it says in verse 1, Naaman was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Why? Why is Naaman held in high regard by his master? The text tells us. Because by him the Lord had given great victory to Syria. So the king admired Naaman because he was a winner. Naaman was a winner. But then that begs another question. 
why was Naaman a winner? And it said it right there, because the Lord had given victory to Syria through Naaman. So God blessed Naaman's work. For whatever and whatever that reason is, God blessed him. And so Naaman met with success, and he was regarded by the king as being very valuable to him. And that's why it's very unusual that he would have retained his services even as a leper. He was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. So he was in very high regard by the king. And if he had not been, I really can't imagine that he would have been serving in the presence of the king. Leprosy was just not something that you trifled with. And so he valued his service so much that he would not let him go. He'd, uh, pr I assume, now I'm making some assumptions here, but based on what I read in the story, I'm thinking that he'd not been a leper for a whole long time. And uh, we'll get to leprosy in a bit, but I believe he'd probably only begun to show the effects of the leprosy. And so while they all know it, and he can't hide it if he had tried to before, he can't hide it now. The king knows, he knows, everybody knows. And yet he is still serving in the king's presence. Yet, barring what eventually came to pass, it's doubtful that he would have remained in the king's employ for much longer because you're just not going to be able to serve before the king when you're a leper. It's, it's not something that kings would want. It's not something that the court would tolerate. Now, before we go farther, what is leprosy? And I think it's important to talk about that. We always joke about the fact that the next sermon is going to be about leprosy, and this one is. So leprosy, what is it? It is an infectious disease. It is an infectious disease caused by a very slow-growing bacteria. So now it is contagious, but it is not that contagious. It is spread through typically like sneezing, you know, any droplets from your saliva or from your nose. And yet it typically has a very long incubation period, years, three to five years. Sometimes people have, have not shown symptoms of it for 20 years. So it is very, very slow moving. It's by far the slowest growing of bacterias. And it tends to only grow outside the body. Inside the body where it's much, much warmer, hotter, it would die. So it kind of serves, it, it survives at the extremities of the body, like in the nasal cavity, along the nose, uh, on the fingertips, that type of thing. Not everybody is susceptible to leprosy. Only about 5 to 10% of people around the world are susceptible to even uh, contracting it. And there are two types. There is the tuberculoid, which is the one that you hear described in Scripture very, very clearly. And it talks about there being either a pale white or a, a kind of a glowing red patch. And then there's also the leprotomus, lepromatus. And it is the one that you tend to see. And if you look up pictures of it, it's very, very gross. Uh, these are the things that develop over time and they become scabs and they affect the people and, and people just deteriorate. They melt away before your eyes. In addition to the fact that it affects the nerves and the nerve endings and causes people to damage themselves without intending to because they can't feel hot, they can't feel pain, so they just end up losing parts of themselves because they can't. Uh, years ago, in Northern Europe, for instance, it affected an awful lot of people. Uh, it's estimated that 800 years ago, in like 1200 AD time range, Northern Europe, about one in four people suffered from leprosy. And yet other, much faster acting things, such as the bubonic plague, 
came in and just devastated the population in a matter of a few months. And a lot of that took out the lepers. And then the people that survived were not those that were prone to get leprosy. Uh, 75% of victims around the world uh, that have leprosy are all in India. India is still probably by far the major nation suffering from it. But over the last 30 years, in that we've identified it in 870, 1873 as a disease spread by bacteria, it has been fought and it has largely been overcome. And so in the last 30 years, the occurrence of leprosy has vastly diminished. And it is typically fought very uh, successfully with antibiotics. Yet, until 50, 60 years ago, it was still widely spread in this world and, and very, very uh, fearsome disease. And also the Bible speaks uh, about it, and it's kind of throughout the Bible. The first occurrence is in Exodus 4, and it's where God is, has appeared to Moses and he's instructing him to go to Pharaoh, and he gives that as a sign. In addition to the stick that he can throw down and have turned into a snake, he has Moses put his hand into his vest, pull it out, it's leprous, put it back in, pull it out, it's not. It doesn't appear that Moses used that as a sign before the Pharaoh of Egypt to impress upon him God's power. The stick was used. In Leviticus 13 and 14, extensive regulations about leprosy, how to cleanse it, how to watch for its growth, how to deal with it if you see it, uh, how to deal with mold, mildew, things like this. Uh, two chapters of Leviticus deal with that. And then Numbers 5, the lepers are instructed to remain outside the camp because they're unclean. Now, other people become unclean, but that's temporary. They're only unclean for a day. So they have to be banished outside the camp too, but then they are cleansed and come back in. The lepers were not to be cleansed. They always hung at the periphery of the camp. They were not allowed in. Uh, in Numbers 12, in the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron, uh, Miriam was given leprosy. The cloud of God came down upon them. It left, and there was Miriam, white as snow. And Aaron immediately turns to Moses and says that we sinned in doing what we did. Uh, please forgive us. And so Moses immediately intercedes with God, but God says, even if her father had spat in her fa face, she would be unclean for seven days. And so that was the time limit. The whole community waited for Miriam to be free from the leprosy for seven days, and then finally they moved on. Uh, in 2 Samuel 3, when David is publicly mourning the murder of Abner by Joab and his brother Abishag, he pronounces a curse upon Joab that is fearsome curse. And I wouldn't have wanted to be cursed by David, this powerful uh, man of God like this. But he said that may there never be a time in Joab's family where there is not someone suffering from leprosy or an open running sore. I mean, very uh, strong words. But David, he was, he was proclaiming to the people that he was innocent of Abner's blood. And uh, I'm sure Joab was uh, affected by that. He knew that he had made an enemy of David that day. Now, there were two kings who publicly suffered from leprosy, and it, it's interesting to note that they were both Judean kings. They were not the more sinful, the more evil, the more idolatrous uh, northern kingdom of Israel. They were both in the south. It was Azariah and Uzziah, uh, and I believe it was grandson or great-grandson, I forget. But anyway, both of them suffered from leprosy. And then we go to the New Testament, and Jesus heals a single leper when he appears to him. 
He heals a group of 10 lepers. And then there is this uh, kind of final reference to leprosy, at least that I'll bring up, and it is uh, Naaman. Jesus cites the story of Naaman in Luke 4, and uh, we'll get to that later. So leprosy is referenced throughout the Bible, and it was widely believed to be genetic, which means that it is hereditary. It passes from father to son, mother to daughter, that type of thing. And it's now known to not be hereditary, but when you consider the fact that 5 to 10% of the people are susceptible to it, I would imagine that susceptibility to the disease is genetic. So in other words, you inherit the same predispositions your parents do typically. And so that you could be said. But the disease itself, though, is contracted. You catch it. And yet the Bible, like, like what uh, David pronounced upon Joab, the, di- the Bible does appear to intimate that it is genetic, that it can be hereditary. Because look at what uh, Elisha pronounced upon Gehazi, you know you will have Naaman's leprosy. Now, we know this was a miraculous conveyance of that leprosy, not a natural occurrence. And so I think we can excuse that. And uh, also with David even, what he's pronouncing upon Joab, it was a a, uh, pronouncement of a curse upon a man. And so you're now getting into the miraculous, not the natural world. So that is an overview. We kind of introduced Naaman, introduced the fact that he's a leper, introduced leprosy. But now let's talk about uh, the text We'll get to verse 2, and we talk about this little servant girl. Syria had gone out on raids and brought back captive this young girl. And so God's providence is reflected in this. So see, God had made Naaman the man he was. All of the potential that Naaman was to become was granted him by God. And all of the realization of that potential that Naaman could have become was granted to him by God. So see, we are what and whom God has made us to be. And yet, kind of like authors, when they're giving credits, they credit people and they say, thank you for all these things, but you know, any flaws are my own. Any errors are my responsibility. And that's kind of us. We can point to God as being the father of all of our virtuous behavior, all of our virtuous conduct and abilities and accomplishments. But yet, sin taints us. And so, we suffer that taint in regards to just not accomplishing what it was that we could if we weren't sinful. And it's not that God held us back, it's that we, being our sinful selves, did. So this little girl says, if only he would go and be with this uh, Elisha in Samaria, this prophet in my home country, he would heal him of his leprosy. Now this is a young girl's faith. And so uh, she had a simple faith uncorrupted by the worldly beatdown that we all get. That's not possible. That's stupid. Why are you talking like that? You know, we all learn it. But this little girl's too young to know any of that. She just says, hey, this is the way it worked in my, in my country. And so see, what the girl said is certainly understandable. She's a young servant girl in this foreign land. But what Naaman did might be perceived as odd when you think about it, if you really give some thought to it. Because he heard this story And then he immediately went to his king and said, this is what this little servant girl is saying. And then the king writes that letter. See, this is kind of remarkable because this is just a servant girl. This is just a story. Why would they believe it? You can understand why Naaman would want to believe it, right? He's desperate. Leprosy is a serious, serious disease, and he wants to retain his life, this life that he's built up, this life that he enjoys. 
And the king just probably figures nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, so he sits down and writes that letter. And uh, it was Alexander Pope that said it, and you probably all have heard the quote, but hope springs eternal in the human breast. And so Naaman was hopeful, and his king was hopeful. Perhaps this can work. And uh, then we get to verse 6, when the king of Israel gets this letter. Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Very matter of fact. I just want you to do this for me. I just want you to do this small miracle for me. And yes, I know I'm a big, powerful neighbor, but, you know, let's never mind that. Because, see, they were always warring. Uh, the northern kingdom and this uh, Syrian or Aramean, they, were, they, they had been at war for quite off and on. Not apparently at war at this moment. But so I love the reaction. Am I God to kill and make alive? Now, we might not know exactly who this king of Israel is, but I can guarantee you one thing. This king of Israel was not faithful to Jehovah because very few of the northern kings were. They all had abandoned God from Jeroboam on. And so he was not a servant of our God. He knew him. He was aware of his power. He feared him probably too, but he did not serve him. And yet he is most likely very relieved to get this note from Elisha, send him to me. Because at this point, this guy is a problem. And Elisha can easily hand, uh, or the king of Israel can hand this problem off to Elisha. Now, this king of Israel did not serve Jehovah, nor did he like Elijah and Elisha. They were thorns in the flesh of these northern kings. They feared them too. They respected them. But they really didn't like them. And so Naaman, uh, at first I thought when I'd read this, just kind of simply through, it seemed to me that the letter had been sent on ahead and that Naaman was told to go and gather and go. But then you see that he hands it. It says he brought the letter to the king of Israel. So it appears that Naaman himself shows up with the letter. And then the king is probably allowed to read it. I, I doubt that there, he was present to see the, the king's response or his shock. And, and kings are probably trained not to show shock on their faces. But uh, anyway, Naaman pro most likely brought that. And so then Elisha learns of it fairly quickly. Who knows why? It doesn't appear to be a supernatural thing, but he heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. Uh, word spread fast. So he volunteers to do this. Now you can imagine Naaman is the commander of all the army of Syria. You really doubt that he showed up just himself. He's got an entourage. It says he has his chariot. He has his aides. He has all this gold and silver. That's a thousand pounds of gold and silver. 750 pounds roughly of silver, 250 pounds roughly of gold. That's a lot of weight. So they've got carts, they've got soldiers, they've got aides. He's got this whole entourage. So they are sent to Elisha. And then Elisha does not even come down from his house. Wherever he is in his house, he doesn't come see Naaman. He just says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now, it doesn't seem dismissive to me, but I'm not Naaman. I'm not the commander of an army. It did seem dismissive to Naaman. It says, this is what Elisha said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. That's pretty simple. And yet, Naaman takes great offense. Naaman became furious. 
and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place. There you can see that the leprosy apparently had not spread that far yet because he says, wave his hand over the place. So it doesn't appear have to have spread over his whole body. It's just somewhere, somewhere visible, somewhere that he can't hide it, but somewhere there it is an indicator that you are a dead man. You're a walking dead man. Leprosy is going to take you. So he then complains, saying that the waters and the rivers in Damascus are cleaner and that he should have just remained there. But then he went away in a rage and his servants come to him. His servants handled this situation very, very well. And by providence, he had servants that would do this, that would handle this well, that would give wise counsel to him, that would be uh, unafraid to do so. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath. And that's in a sense what they did. They came to him and just said, If he had commanded you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then in that he asked you to do this little thing? And Naaman is mollified. Again, he's a desperate man. He might have his pride. He might have his anger at being treated like this, dismissed like this, but yet he still wants to be healed. So he obeys. He went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And so I've already cited the instances in the Old Testament of the healing of leprosy. Moses, Miriam, Naaman. All of them miraculous. So there was no natural way, no doctor way to heal leprosy. These people were all healed miraculously. So now, what happens then? And this is where the story begins to get much more interesting. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. So see, he didn't just go away. He got what he came for, right? He's healed. He's happy. He can easily return home. But he doesn't. And he says this to Elisha, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So he was healed. He got what he wanted, but he got more. Let me read to you from Luke. This is Luke chapter 17, uh, starting at verse 11. And this is Jesus. Uh, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So that's coming in from the north. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. So see, this one of the ten was thankful. Thankful enough to go back, return to the Lord, and thank him for what he had done. And that's what Naaman is doing. Being cleansed was not enough. Now he has to go express his thanks. So he returns to give thanks. He is the tenth leper in the story that uh, Jesus tells, the story that really occurred in Samaria. 
And here we are too. This king has come down to Samaria in order to be healed by Elisha. So then Elisha twice refuses to accept a gift. Please take a gift. But he said, as the Lord lives with whom, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. He urged him to take it, but he refused. And what Elisha was demonstrating is that this was not purchased. If you give me a gift, it seems as if now it's quid pro quo. I did something for you, you do something for me. Isn't this wonderful? But Elisha would not even give the pretense of that being the case. All the gifts of God are gifts. They are not quid pro quo. They are not given in return for something else that God is then given, or even God's servant is then given. So now, Naaman then, though, is still not done. So he said then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord only. So he wants earth from Elisha's home, essentially right around there, to go back with him, such that he can sacrifice only on that. Now we know that is how worship occurred. Remember when Jesus is with the woman at the well, the time is coming when all will worship him in spirit and in truth. But that time was not now. That time was not even, even in Jesus' day. The sacrificial system still existed. And so here we have this man wanting to worship Jehovah God in the way that Jehovah God had claimed to be worshipped, and that is through sacrifice, through animal sacrifice. Then he goes on, that's not enough, he goes farther. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. And then he explains how he has to go into the temple of Rimmon with his master, the king of Syria and how his king bows down to worship this idol in this temple, and uh, Naaman, just by nature of being the king's manservant, is bowing down with him in the temple. And he, his conscience is stricken about this, and he, he uh, explains to Elisha what's happening. So see, uh, he at this moment is a God-fearer. He, has, he is entirely uh, walking in faith, in, in, in obedience to God, and it pricks his heart that he cannot do it as well as he would like to do it. He's not a Jew. He's not moving to Israel to become a Jew. He's still Syrian. He's still the commander of the army of Syria, but yet he is a God-fearer, and he doesn't want to compromise and worship idols as he knows, everybody would know, that in Israel you don't worship idols. And so, they were, I'm sure all of the surrounding nations were aware of what had gone down in terms of Jehovah God being the God that's not worshipped with idols, and yet the northern kingdom having compromised in this way to be worshipping idols. And here he is before Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, who were thorns in the flesh of the northern kings because they were worshipping idols. They were rejecting and ignoring Jehovah God. So then what does Elisha do? He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him. So now Elisha does not judge him for this, it appears to me. He has asked to be forgiven for this. He has asked for the understanding of God for what he is doing in this temple of Rimmon. And Elisha blesses him as if to say, go in peace, you are blessed. So now, what are the lessons from the story of this? Because that's as far as I'm going to proceed in the text. So first, the healing of Naaman was a miracle. And what are miracles? 
miracles are signs to us, to all the people of the earth, that God exists and that God takes interest in the affairs of men. So he chooses to overrule the rules by which he's created to guide this earth at times for his purposes and for his glory. And yet people forget God. And so prideful men think that they can do whatever they want. God has gone away to a far country, as they say. I want to share an illustration, and it's a little odd, but I think it will help. Uh, when I was a kid, I'd play Little League, and I learned the rules of baseball. I was a pitcher, so I learned to throw it over the plate, and you had to get it in here to get a strike, and the batter's trying to hit it. You have to, you have to deal with that batter. He's there to uh, attack that ball. You're there to try to get it past him. But now there was the concept that I really didn't understand when I was young, and I didn't necessarily agree with, because I'd heard my coach and other coaches saying it, and that is that as a pitcher, you kind of have the right and the responsibility to drive that batter back off the plate if they seem to be too comfy there. And so it's called brushing the batter back. And so the batter's up there, and they're all comfy, and they're at the plate, and you pitch it right here at their chest, and so they have to jump back, or they'll get hit. And instinct kicks in. Even if they want to get hit, they tend to dodge things thrown at you at high speeds. So uh, you're brushing the batter back. And what it's called is that you are owning the plate. You're taking control of that home plate. That's your plate. That's not the batter's plate. That's your plate. And I just thought, well, that seems so possessive. It's just, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I think by nature, a very fair person. And I thought, well, you know, it's his as much as mine. It's a game after all. But then I began to watch baseball. I really became an Oakland Athletics fan in the mid to late 80s, and I watched a lot of baseball, much to my wife's dismay. I'd just sit there on the couch watching game after game after game, and if they weren't playing where I could watch them, I'd listen to them on the radio. I mean, I spent just a tremendous amount of time listening to baseball or watching it. But then I learned what that meant about the pitcher owning the plate. And then I began to accept the fact that the pitcher had the responsibility to drive that batter off that plate. So the question is, who owns the plate? And so you see, the healing of Naaman is a miracle, and I think it ties into this story of who owns home plate, and I'll get to that in a bit. Now, it was a sign, right? It was a miracle. It was a sign that God interacts in the world of men, but it was another sign, a sign to the Israelites. The healing of Naaman was a sign to the Israelites because they thought they owned home plate. And God brushed them back. He brought Naaman down to heal him, a Syrian army commander who often had brought his army down to fight against the Israelites. And yet here God is healing him because the Israelites began to believe that they were special, that they owned God in a sense. They owned that plate. It was theirs to control. And God brushes them off the plate. No, the plate is mine. Salvation is mine. I give it to who I will. Let me read to you that uh, occurrence in Luke 4 where Jesus refers to Naaman. I'm going to read Luke 4, 16 to 22. Now this is Jesus 
So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now he stopped mid-sentence in this reading. It's really a remarkable place for him to have stopped. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now at this point, he has just entered the synagogue of Nazareth where he had spent many, many years until just a couple years earlier, a year earlier. And here he is reading this scripture and proclaiming this. These people are awed. They, they have heard the rumors about him healing people up in Capernaum. And here he is just speaking with such authority from the word of God. Then he goes on. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Sidon is way north of Israel. It's up in what is now Lebanon. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, Damascus is way up north in Syria, pretty much parallel with Sidon. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Why? Why did these people get so angry whenever he brought up the story of the widow of Sidon and Naaman, the healing of Naaman? Why is that? Because they were not Israelites. They were not worthy of this. And he's bringing them up. It's bad enough that Elijah and Elisha had done those miracles. And now here is this man who's again doing miracles, and he brings that up. See, the Jews of Jerusalem looked down on the northern Jews that were in the former Samaria, where Nazareth is. The Jews of Nazareth looked down on anybody else that might be an example of those receiving God's favor. It's just this pecking order. I deserve it, you don't. And his uh, bringing it up was a rebuke of that way of thinking. And they were rebuked. When you rebuke people, they get angry at you sometimes. And they got very angry at Jesus. So see, the healing of Naaman was God brushing the Jews away from the plate and yet letting Naaman remain. Letting non-Israelites remain there. It just seemed so unfair to these Jews. They believed they owned God, and they were outraged 
that they would be told that they didn't. So now what are the lessons from this message for us? Uh, often I don't do this, but I wanted to do this. So if you like to take lists, if you like to take notes, I have seven notes that you can take. Seven lessons from this message. First, as Naaman knew the moment he was detected with leprosy, given all of his great achievements on this earth, uh, achievements in earth are not enough. And your imminent death, your imminent loss of all of your dignity, all of your uh, gains, reflects that. He knew he was a doomed man, and that's why he became a desperate man. So see, our earthly accomplishments are not in and of themselves worthy. And it's a message that we humans always forget. Two, do not despise wise counsel based solely on the source. Do not discredit the source of wisdom. We had this young servant girl proclaim wisdom, and then we had his aides that were with him proclaim wisdom, and in each instance, Naaman listened. In part, it may have been only because he was desperate. If he hadn't been so desperate, he may have been too proud, and yet let us not be too proud. Third, faith in God overcomes fear. Elisha had no fear of what was being asked, but the king of Israel sure did. He was fearful because he had no faith. He didn't know God. Four, all honor belongs to God, none to us. And that's what Elisha demonstrated. That's what Gehazi failed to demonstrate later when he went and in Elisha's name said, we want stuff. But Elisha was not swept away by Naaman's pomp and circumstance, by this big entourage that showed up at his door. He just sent word to the messenger, tell him to do this. He knew it would infuriate Naaman. In part, that's what he wanted. He needed to humble his pride to make him receptive to what was going to happen. The fifth point, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Had Naaman not swallowed his pride, he would not have been healed. It's just that simple. But he was a desperate man. It was fortunate that he knew he was that desperate because he was able to swallow his pride. And six, express thanks in all things because he had leprosy and yet his leprosy led him to not only being healed but being saved. Psalm 107 has a refrain and it's a beautiful refrain. It occurs five times in the psalm. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Naaman was that one in ten leper. He was the thankful one. The thankful one that gets so much more blessing than simply being healed of the leprosy, which in itself, of course, is a tremendous blessing. And then the last point, and there could be many more. This is just filled with illustrations and, and with uh, wisdom. Number seven, uh, let's not judge other men's servants. Uh, that's what Paul instructs the Romans in 14.4. And this is Elisha accepting Naaman's explanation of what would occur in the temple of Rimmon. I believe his blessing of him was an acknowledgement that this is a world we live in where stuff like this occurs. He's not blessing syncretism. He's not blessing idolatry. But he is blessing the fact that uh, Naaman's conscience is pricked by this, and yet he still wants to serve God faithfully. How can I do that? 
uh, some of the authors I'd read, the commentators I've read, the preachers I've read, would say, oh, he should have renounced his position as the Syrian army commander. He should have uh, not gone into the Temple of Rimen with his, his boss, the king. Um, I, I don't think it needed to go to that extreme myself, and I don't think Elisha believed that either. And so those were seven lessons that at least I just kind of picked out from that. Now, I want to cover a few points, though. This is, kind of, in a sense, a summation. First, Naaman's healing was a miracle, and miracles alert people to God's interest and ownership of this earth. And it was also informing the Jews that God was not their property. God was his own, and he would bless whom he chose. Jesus' words to the people of Nazareth 800 years later confirmed this and affirmed this. Now, for millennia, leprosy illustrated the destructiveness of sin very, very visibly in our world. And we are blessed to live at a time where that need no longer be the case. Uh, if we were even 100 years ago or 150 years ago, leprosy devastates communities. And yet here we live at a time where it has been controlled. God has blessed us with antibiotics to kill it. But it is still a very, very vivid picture of sin. It starts so simply, just as a blemish. And before long, it's just ripping hunks of flesh off your body. See, that's sin. Left unchecked, sin destroys. And we all know, we've seen it. We've seen it in people. As they mature into sin, they just become more and more sinful, more and more wicked. Naaman's skin was healed and it became like that of a newborn. And the healing of his skin mirrored the healing of his soul, the restoration of this fellowship with God, this love of God. He was healed from leprosy, but also from sin. And he became a devoted follower of God. And God used this gory leprosy to bring him into the glorious relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that it gives us of restoration of fellowship with you, of restoration of life, and the promise that we have in uh, not only living a life of meaning on this earth, but also uh, enjoying life in heaven with you forever. Uh, Lord, the unbeliever just hasn't a clue as to what they are missing, what they are losing out on through their obstinance, through their prideful sin. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not also, that those saved, we would not uh, slide back into sin, uh, not think salvation a trivial matter. We know that it cost Christ all. And so we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of how special it is that we have a restored relationship with you. And we pray, Father, that that relationship would grow and blossom and uh, just totally overwhelm us in this world to where we would not become slaves of sin in this flesh. We thank you now for this time together and thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen.